Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. The beginning of chapter 7, I'll pick up in verse 1, reading through verse 10. The word of God reads in Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go. And he goes. I say to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now imagine with me as we begin a quiet Friday evening in the home of a family. Now not my home, not your home, just one of those pretend ones that we only see in the movies, okay? You know which type of home I'm talking about, one of those that's a a big white two-story house that has a green lawn out front and has huge four-pane windows with the drapes pulled back so that as the, the movie camera starts the picture from the curb, we can move slowly in through those big windows to see the family who lives there gathered around a beautiful dining room table, each indulging in pizza and soda. And for the carb police in the room, remember the story started with a Friday night, okay? They had a long week, so just let them enjoy and indulge. And after a while, the youngest son in the family heads upstairs to bed. He's had an especially tiring week, and he's not going to fight the oncoming carb coma. And the rest of the family, they stay downstairs, and after some tidying up, everyone but that little boy makes their way to the living room to watch a movie. And everything was going smoothly until the smoke detectors start blaring. See, they started blaring because there was a fire raging in the kitchen. And what happened was that one of those other kids who stayed up, thinking that he may take a movie intermission to grab another slice of pizza, slid the box of pizza into the oven and out of routine, set the oven to bake instead of warm. And by the time anyone could make it to the kitchen, the fire was beyond their ability to control. And so the parents ordered everyone outside the house and they called the fire department. And everyone in the family made it out except the youngest boy. He was long asleep while his family was watching that movie and he himself was awakened by the blaring sound of the smoke detectors. But by then, he couldn't make it down the stairs, so he climbed 
out on the roof just outside his bedroom window, and he was immediately overtaken by fear. The smoke was so thick from the first floor that the little boy couldn't see anything down below the roof. Not only was the smoke blindingly thick, it was suffocating. He couldn't control his coughing, and his eyes watered terribly. He could feel the heat as the flames licked upwards from the edge of the roof line. And he could hear two distinct sounds. The first was the sound of sirens in the distance. Sirens that he could tell were beginning to get closer. He knew help was coming, but there was no telling if that help would arrive in time. The other was the sound of his daddy's voice. His daddy's voice that was saying, son, jump! My son, jump. I promise you I'll catch you. Just jump. And in between his coughing fits, the boy said, but daddy, I can't see you. I can't see you. What would you do if you were that kid? Could you blindly jump over the edge of the roof? That roof that had a fire lapping at your feet while smoke billows around you? I mean, you don't know what awaits below you once you launch into that jump. It could be anything, right? Maybe it's a hedge that awaits to cushion your landing. Maybe it's a cement sidewalk. Maybe it's something worse. I mean, going through your mind is the conventional wisdom that that doesn't let you jump, right? Because isn't it said that seeing is believing? As we read this morning, Thomas was among those 12 apostles who walked with Jesus during his ministry, and he said that he actually had to lay his own eyes on and physically touch the supposedly resurrected Jesus Christ if he was ever going to believe that Jesus had indeed returned from the dead. What would it have taken for that little boy to jump over the edge of the roof into the arms of his father waiting below? What would it have taken for Thomas to have believed that Jesus was risen from the dead? Faith, a simple five-letter word that if you lack it or you misplace it, you will suffer the consequences for your actions. So this morning, I want us to prepare to seek to answer this question. What is faith? As we set out as our heading to answer this, I'd like to start by offering a word of gratitude to to Pastor Carlos for the message he delivered last week that concluded our time in Romans chapter 12. See, we studied that chapter to reinforce what Jesus preached in Luke chapter 6, that what he preached, which was concerning the kingdom of transformation that has been ushered in. And I hope from the messages that you heard over the last nine weeks that you've come come to understand that saving faith in Jesus Christ is not something that, that only affects you or affects what comes after your death. Faith in Jesus Christ not only affects your eternity, it most certainly changes your present. It affects your present life. So much so that here's a gospel reality that's just so difficult for us to grasp. Whenever Jesus found you, wherever he found you, however he found you, he died for you just the way he found you. If you're outside the faith this morning, I know going through your mind are all the things about how these good Christian people are looking at you and judging you right now. Thinking about all the things you may have done last night, but I need you to know right now that Jesus died for you just the way you are. 
He didn't. But here's another gospel reality that just confounds us. That in his saving you, Jesus shows his love for you and he promises you he's not going to leave you the way he found you. Oh, you could have been a drug addict, an alcoholic, an adulterer, a fornicator. It doesn't matter how he finds you. He redeems you and he sanctifies you. He makes you more like him. And despite conventional wisdom, you don't need to clean yourself up for Jesus Christ to save you. But you can rest assured that if he has saved you, he begins a work of cleaning you up from the inside out. And this is confusing to so many of us because we probably haven't heard it preached much. Because this is frankly difficult stuff. It's difficult to motivate people towards accepting change. And so often, times that we try to get things done, we use, we resort to what's the greatest, one of the greatest motivational techniques that there is. You know what that is? Fear. Fear is a great motivator. Fear even works in a church setting. I mean, did you know that it's way easier to scare people to Jesus by talking about the heat and the fire of hell? It's way easier. And yet it's incomplete to speak about these spiritual matters without addressing the totality of what it means to be drawn into Christ's gloriously transforming light. And so as we surrender to Jesus as king, it is Jesus who has our say in, has the say in our lives, and it is Jesus who starts to clean up our lives so that you and I who have been adopted by the Father by grace through faith in Jesus Christ begin to act and think less and less like the world with each passing day, while more and more we begin to live lives that honor and please God. And this is all done by the Spirit of God who applies the gospel to our hearts, renewing our minds and renewing our passions. And this is what Jesus began to preach that we began to study nine weeks ago in Luke chapter 6. And it's reinforced throughout the entirety of the Bible. And now we find Jesus is moving from that grand sermon that outlines the aim of God's kingdom to moving to the characteristics that are demonstrated by citizens of God's kingdom. And as we see here at the outset of Luke chapter 7, we're told of an interaction that takes place between the Lord Jesus Christ and two different groups of emissaries or advocates who are representing a Roman centurion. And this centurion is a man who resides in a city named Capernaum, which wasn't far from where Jesus was preaching in the chapter that we were last in, chapter 6. And if you're curious who this centurion is, let me begin to try to express that to you or explain that to you by asking you a question. How many cents are in a dollar? Now, I know if we've used cash anywhere lately, you would know that the answer to this has apparently become more difficult for cashiers to ever answer, but I will tell you it's 100 cents makes a dollar. And a centurion is, isn't the man's name in this passage. It's a description that indicates that he is a man who's been given authority over 100 Roman soldiers in his service under a man named Herod Antipas, who, if you remember is the ruler of the region. A centurion isn't a commoner. You might say that a centurion would have been a somebody around the streets of Capernaum. And whoever this particular centurion was, he was a man who apparently had many servants under his authority, and apparently one of which he was particularly fond of 
who had fallen ill at about the time that Jesus had come to town. And this centurion prized a particular servant. And dare I say, he loved this particular servant. And the condition of this servant had become increasingly dire to the point, as it says in verse 2, that the servant was sick and at the point of death. Now the servant's condition had moved to critical stages and now life was fleeting. And when the situation got out of, out of the ability for anyone to control, we find the centurion who's reaching out to Jesus. And before we jump into investigating how this centurion reaches out to Jesus, I need to point out something to you briefly that I hope will serve to encourage you. Encourage you in this way. Because I know that I'm not alone this morning when I share with you that, that there are people that I love dearly who do not know the Lord. There are lots of people that I love dearly that don't know the Lord. And I desperately want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I've shared with them. I've shared with them the, the, the gospel. I've shared with them how, how the gospels transformed me. And I've received all sorts of responses as I've shared with those people. Responses like, well, that's nice. Or thanks. Or just blank stare. Like, that's all I get kind of frustrating. And I've been praying for years for some of them to come to the place of faith, and I've had to fight off the urge to just resign to hopelessness. And what I've, what I've realized is that the focus of my prayer needs to change. And this may come across as something uh, of a disbelief, but as I pray for the salvation of souls, my prayer must be for the Lord to bring those souls to a place of brokenness, a place of brokenness where they can see the limits of their worldly comforts and that they can no longer rely upon their strength or their smarts or their beauty. And the centurion has no one to turn to and just at the hearing about Jesus, as it says in verse 3, he appeals to Jesus, help. And for those of you who are fighting the urge to give in to this hopelessness for the salvation of those whom you love, pray that they be broken. And maybe you're that person who's broken today. Maybe you're here and you're angry at your situation. Maybe even angry at God. I need you to know you've come to the right place. And I also need you to know that right now, that though your world may be crumbling around you, Jesus Christ has allowed all of this to come because he loves you. and He wants to save you. And it's not the promise of God to bring you health, nor is it the promise of God to bring you wealth. But your brokenness has been brought about because a relationship with Jesus is far richer than all the world's riches if you amass them together for yourself. And I know at times we can wonder why so many resist the gospel. Salvation's free to you. It's free as the air that you draw in right now that gives you life. I know some of you know I was sick early last week, but I wasn't sick into the weekend. Uh, we had plans to be out of town last weekend. And Yvette and I attended a Christian concert that was hosted at a Baptist church last Saturday night. And we experienced what I believe to be a miracle. And this might be difficult to imagine, but that night in this particular church we were in, there were 1,200 Christians who all clapped on beat and in harmony for four straight songs. Can you imagine that? 
And as miraculous as that sounds, it's probably because most of those 1,200 were Pentecostals or something like that. They couldn't have been Baptists. Now, what really stood out to me was that what happened is, is what happened before the concert. Now, the, the tickets for this concert were all general admission, and the doors were supposed to open at 6.15. Concert was supposed to start at 7. And so we get to the church at about 5.30. And to my shock, something I'd never before seen, people were in a line outside the church, all desperate to get into a church. My friends, how I pray that such were the case at churches all across the nation this morning. That there be lines formed, people with people who are weary from their week and eager to hear the gospel. Yet that's not a problem we have in church, is it? I gotta ask you, did you come to church today eager to hear the gospel? Why not? Why not? Well, I think why not is, is a symptom that's revealed to us in verses 4 and 5 of our passage that comes from the first group of emissaries that's sent by the, by the centurion that's revealed to us. Notice with me that it says, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, the text doesn't explain why the centurion sends the elders of the Jews in Capernaum to Jesus. Maybe we conclude that the centurion assumed that Jesus, who was a Jew himself, would be influenced by fellow Jews. Who knows? But beyond explaining the need of the centurion, these Jewish elders take it upon themselves to justify why Jesus should entertain this request. Notice they say that the centurion's worthy, that he's an ally to the Jews, and in fact that he's rolled out enough dough to pay for their church building. And what these elders were doing was pleading with the king of the cosmos to give this, this guy their belief of what he was due. You see that? They said, because this guy's done so much for our people, surely the God of our people will act on his behalf and for his benefit. Well, speaking on matters of disbelief, this is where the concept of grace is so difficult for us to actually believe, isn't it? And do you remember about a month ago, we defined that word, that term grace together? We said then that grace is getting what you do not deserve. Well, what these elders were doing was saying the exact opposite. They're saying, Jesus, give this guy what he's earned. He deserves it. And there's a symptom here that is shared by those who have rejected the gospel call, as well as those who have responded at some point in the past and are now calloused. Christians. Both or neither have need for grace. On the case of the non-believer, they believe that, that they're genuinely good people, and in the life that awaits them beyond death, that there are angels that are laying on clouds, that are playing harps, that are already warming up to their favorite songs on the basis that they're, that they're not like the murderers or the pedophiles or the Hitlers of this world. By the way, this applies to people of faith too. Remember, our text is showing to us the Jewish elders who are speaking with the Lord. On the case of the believer, these are folks that have been around the block a few times in the life of the church, and they've come to believe things like, you know, they've put in their time, that they've kicked in enough coin, that they've taught enough Sunday school lessons, that they've gone to enough youth camps, or whatever. And both perspectives bring utter ruin upon the lives that embody the symptom because they have both arrived at the place 
of living out of their individual ability, trusting in their own strength, and denying the grace of God. They've both subscribed to the world's wisdom of things like, you know, there ain't nothing free in life. Or, or like we're told, you know, there's always a catch. And sure, in every scenario in life, those statements have proven themselves true in the systems that we've built in this world. But every last one of them, the ain't nothing free, there's always a catch, those lines, those thoughts, they all crumble before the cross of Jesus Christ. They both need a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit who has given to us God's Word, which declares, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me put this in personal terms. I did nothing to earn my salvation. Not a thing. Jesus gave that to me. I can't stand before you. I can't stand before anyone else. I can't even dare stand before God himself and point to anything that is worthy in and of myself. I mean, I could have even done a very noble thing. Say, given my life in exchange for that of a child. But that still would not address the issue of sin in my life. Why is that? That's because my life is not worth enough to make amends with God for the terrible actions, the horrific thoughts, and the innumerable defects that exist in Dan Newberg. And someone says, you know, I don't know that I'm with you right now. I haven't done anything that terrible. I'm a good Christian person. And if that's in your head this morning, my friend, you may not actually be a Christian because you don't know the vileness of your sin that you've committed before a holy and righteous God. And you lack any sense about the value of the life that the Father willed to sacrifice with the life of Jesus Christ to redeem sin. And friends, this is the importance of the gospel uh, that, that must be spoken to us regularly. I'm reminded this morning of Pastor Tim Keller's summary of the gospel, which he described in this way. He says, of the gospel, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. This is the gospel reality. You are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. And friends, if I don't preach that to myself every day of every week, I cannot dare think about standing before you. I can't. I preach myself. I, I preach works. I preach something. I can't preach grace if I don't know and remind myself of the gospel reality of grace each and every day. For our Bible teachers, thank you for your service. But let me warn you, if you aren't preaching this to your own heart every day of every week, as you prepare your Sunday school lessons, as you prepare your Wednesday night lessons, resign your post. I'm absolutely serious. No church is built up by prideful people ministering the word of God. Can't be. We don't need anyone in any position that's pleading on the basis of deservedness or worthiness. Oh, you're, you deserve being saved. We don't need anyone saying that. 
We need everyone in every corner of every hall in every room of this campus pleading the grace of God that willingly shed the blood of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. And Christian in the cross, Jesus has set your sin as far as the east is from the west. But if you are calloused to his grace, pray that God bring you a fresh perspective of the grace that bought you as well as a renewed love for this king of grace who lavishes it upon you. And lost sinner, God's grace is available to you. But you've got to pay attention to what happens with the second group of emissaries to understand how you receive it. Now Jesus heard the plea of the Jewish elders and the text says that Jesus went with them. And I don't believe that it was because the elders wooed him so much as it is the Lord's intention to reveal to them the nature of God's kingdom that their pride had blinded them to. And as Jesus was on his way to the centurion's home, the centurion's friends reached Jesus with a new message from the centurion. It reveals two things about the centurion's understanding of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, and of faith itself. We look first at uh, verse 6 in the beginning of verse 7. The friends say, speaking on behalf of the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. And where the Jewish elders had, had said to Jesus that the centurion deserved God's blessing, we see the nature of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. A man who would have been amongst the city's elite. This centurion did not believe himself worthy to receive Jesus, nor did he believe himself worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. And as sinners... We're anything but worthy to be in relationship with God. In fact, the Bible says that we're separated from God because of our sin. i got to ask you, do you think that you're worthy of God's grace? Do you believe of yourself that God is just so lucky to have you? The centurion's faith in Jesus Christ has given him a sense of, of of who he is before the king of all, by the way. And the only proper way to come before this King Jesus is recognizing our own unworthiness and praising him for his grace. And it leads me to issue a warning like this this morning. A warning that we've got to grasp and wrap our heads around. Talking about deservedness, worthiness, and grace. It comes from an author uh, named Trevin Wax. He said, I think it's 2013, he said, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Hell is full of people who think that they deserve heaven. And heaven is full of people who know that they deserve hell. That's a reality. That's a terrifyingly sad reality. And for those of us who are children of God by faith, we can can certainly be confident that paradise awaits us. And that's on the certainty that it is Jesus who called us into his kingdom. It's on the basis of Jesus, not because of me not because of you. If we think that we're owed it, we're wrong. By the way, this is what the Bible says. This isn't just Dan Newberg's take that you can decide if you're going to roll with or not. This is God's word that you can submit to or reject. And this centurion recognized he didn't deserve anything from Jesus. And interestingly, he actually recognized who Jesus is. If you look with me at what else these friends share with the Lord at the end of verse 7 into verse 8, on behalf of the centurion, they say, But say the word and let my servant be healed. 
For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers with, under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What's the centurion saying? Well, what he's doing is he's making a minor to a, to a major comparison. The centurion is saying, essentially, as a member of the Roman army, when I issue a command to any of the, the 100 in my charge, they obey. And yet, I am also a man under authority. And Jesus, just as I obey commands and those under me obey commands, because of who you are, you don't, you don't even need to enter my home. You are the king, you are ruler over all, and all you need do is but speak, and the forces of this world obey the sound of your voice. It's this centurion, this man, who likely had no sort of upbringing in the faith, who is testifying to his faith that Jesus Christ is God himself, the one who was in the beginning with God, and through whom all things were made, and in whom was life. And unlike that boy who was afraid to step out over the edge, this centurion took a step of faith in trusting Jesus. Took a step of faith. What gave him such confidence? It goes back to verse 3. He heard about Jesus. He heard. The centurion heard. All this started because he heard about Jesus. The guy didn't need empirical data. He didn't demand corroborated testimony. He heard about Jesus and believed and responded. Well, what does hearing have to do with faith? It has everything to do with faith. We see Paul writing to the church at Rome in chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It has everything to do with it. And it's the word of God that point, all points to Jesus which brings faith and helps us define faith in answering our question that faith is the knowledge of trust in and commitment to Jesus Christ. Knowledge of trust in and commitment. Do you know who Jesus is? He's king of all creation, of waters, earth, and sky. Do you trust in Jesus? He died so that you can live, so that you can live free from the burden and consequence of your sin. He's faithful in every way. Are you committed to Jesus? Well, I need you to know that faith isn't something you just muster up as a one-time deal. Once you've arrived at the place of faith in Jesus Christ, faith is at the core of who we are as recipients of God's grace. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.